This book of John is not a collection of facts. It's not just data. He wrote these things. It says, these things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. Now, that you is going to be the reader in 90-something A.D. who gets this letter for the first time in this gospel and is reading it. But it's also us, through God's divine work 2,000 years later, who are, who are the you in that as we're feasting on the book of John. These things, these things that John recorded, are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So there's purpose and design to this book. Belief and resultant life. It's not a collection of facts. You see facts with your eyes. You believe and sing and worship and enjoy him with your heart. Another passage I want to share with you is in the book of Ephesians. You don't need to turn there. Stay in John. I want you to just listen. It's still part of the called scriptural call to worship. Paul planted the church at Ephesus. And this letter that he writes to them, he shares with them that he's praying for them. Listen to what he says. He says, For this reason, because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints. I've heard of your faith and your love, and they're sweet. For this reason, I do not cease to give thanks for you. Man, I am overwhelmed with gratitude, Godward, for what's happening among you. He says, I'm remembering you in my prayers. And here's how he's remembering him, that them, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. He's praying for these people that he knows, that he's walked with, that are doing things well, that they will have a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. Now listen to this. Having the eyes of your hearts, ding, enlightened. Not these eyes. He doesn't care about people collecting data and facts. He's praying for the eyes of their hearts. And here's what he's saying. I'm praying that the eyes of your hearts will be enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he's called you. That you may enjoy what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. Man, that's some rich stuff right there. You don't get that with these eyes. Beep, beep, beep. You get them with these eyes. Man, churches are full of people collecting data with their eyes. And what he's begging for in this church that he's burdened for is that they're enjoying with their eyes of their heart, that they are worshiping, that they are more than collecting data, that they are seeing the, and enjoying and appreciating the hope to which he's called us. That they are being driven by and owned by and that their trajectory is fueled by the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, not our economy are not the myriad of commercials that we're inundated with all day long through media of every sort of what we need to have to be happy. That the eyes of their heart will see that we're already rich. And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? <laughs> That's what he's saying, man. He's saying, I, I want you to see these things with the eyes of your heart. I don't want you collecting facts. So the book of John is a great book to enjoy and savor with the eyes of our heart. We are saving, savoring realities. We are marveling at wonders. 
That's why we can read John chapter 13, verses 1 through 9, over and over and over and over again. The eye says, oh man, I've already seen that. Let's move on. In fact, Evan did it this morning. She was, did it jokingly. Evan has a good sense of humor, and she's joking with me this morning. And I, I was talking with Christy about where we're going this morning. And Evan said, haven't we already gone there? <laughs> she's got this little halfway smile on her face. And as I took the pillow from the couch and was beating her about head and shoulders, I said, no, we're going to enjoy this with the eyes of our hearts. Because the eyes just collect data. But we're collecting adjectives. We're collecting adjectives like marvelous and wonderful and indescribable and mighty and sovereign and graceful and merciful and sovereign. Did I say that? And powerful and beautiful. And those things are only discerned with the eyes of your heart. So my prayer this morning, which I'm about to pray, is for open heart eyes. Youth who sit in these sermons and think about lunch. I'm not saying you do, but you may. (laughs) I'm going to talk to the adults in a minute. Or thinking about some cool music you heard lately. Or what somebody's cool wearing or something. I don't know. I forgot what you think. <laughs> that was a while back. Man, I'm urging y'all to engage this with the eyes of your heart. Adults who are just maybe just here. Man, I'm praying and begging that you'll see these truths that we're engaging today with the eyes of your heart. That we'll savor them together. And that your heart will sing. Let's pray. Lord, what a uh, sweet privilege we have in these next few minutes to enjoy you with our eyes of our hearts. Lord, I know that we can't just grit our teeth and just muster that vision, but that you give it to us. As Paul prayed for it in the church in Ephesus, I pray for it in the people in Greenville here in Crosspoint Fellowship that in these next few minutes that our eyes will be wide open, our hard eyes, and that we'll see rich truths that may arrest us for the first time and that we'll sing and worship and our heart will dance. What a sweet privilege of enjoying you this morning. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. John chapter 13. Let me go back there. You're already there. I shared last week that children can wade in the book of John, but elephants can swim in it. And whales can swim in it. I actually took it to the whole new, whole other level with whales. So whales we're going to be swimming with again this morning. And hopefully, through the work of the Spirit, we're going to see these truths and enjoy them with our heart. Chapter 13, verse 1. Now before the feast of Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hand and that he had come from God and was going back to God, this Jesus rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments, and taking a towel, he tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? And Jesus answered him, What I'm doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. And Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. 
And Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. There's some clues that we considered last week that this foot washing is cross-educating, salvation-illuminating, and gospel-illustrating. Here's the first clue in verse 1, that he loved them to the end. Only hours later, from a rugged cross, he would shout, It is finished. And that seems to be the end or to the extent that he's pointing to. This context of the foot washing is the cross and the final hours and the end. The next clue is in verse 2, where this foot washing takes place during supper. The dinner topic over supper is not what beautiful Tupperware somebody has, although that's not a good illustration. It's not how great the casserole is. The topic for this supper is tearing flesh and gushing blood. So the context for this foot washing is the cross. The next clue is in verse 3. He said he knew he was going back to God. He knew he came from God. He knew he was going back to God. And he's going back to God via spit and nails and pain, and suffering, and gushing blood. The context for the foot washing is the cross. And lastly, and what is really the sweetest to me, is he laid aside his outer garments. Laid aside his outer garments is a picture of him laying aside his proximity to the Father. It's laying aside his dominion, if only for a moment, because he could have gotten down from those cro- that cross. But he didn't. He's laying aside his dominion, if only for a moment. He's laying aside his flesh, which is torn into like the curtain to the Holy of Holies. He's laying aside his earthly comforts, which were few in the first place. Because he traveled light. Laying aside his reputation. Because it's just a few days before they're singing, Hosanna. Waving palm branches at him. Let's make him king. He's laying all that aside. He's laying aside his fanfare. He's laid already laid aside his myriads and myriads of angels worshiping him. He's laid aside elders casting their crowns at him. He's laid aside the creatures flying around him all day long saying, Worthy is the Lamb. He's laid all that stuff aside like he laid his outer garments aside. And he submitted to the ultimate plundering. The ultimate chumping when you get your clothes taken from you. He submitted to that. So the context for this foot washing is the cross. This foot washing, this thing that's oftentimes treated so lightly. Hey, go wash one another's feet. Is one of the premium illustrations of the cross. It is about the work of believing and how the believer interacts with this cross and what was accomplished in the cross. It is a visual of the work of the cross. I love visuals, but it's a, the cross is a difficult thing to visualize. It's a difficult thing to illustrate. We took the kids to the symphony in Dallas. Some folks blessed us with some tickets a couple weeks ago, and we took the kids to the symphony, and it was awesome. And after we got home, I told the kids, I said, I got a project for you. I want you to draw a picture of what you heard. 
And they looked at me like, huh? They looked at me kind of like the picture of what I see oftentimes when I ask somebody, how's your worship? Are you enjoying Christ? Huh? Because <laughs> that's a hard eyes question, isn't it? What? But I asked them to illustrate the symphony. And here's, as difficult as that might be, the difficult thing of illustrating the cross and how the believer interacts with the cross is done and accomplished right here in this simple foot washing. That's why it's so sweet. And that's why it's to be treasured by God's people. But it can only be discerned with the heart. Here's the roles. Here's who plays what. Christ plays the divine washer in chapter 13. He plays the final sacrifice in chapter 19. The foot washing act itself in verse 13 or chapter 13 is the image. It's the illustration of the cross itself of verse 19. The water used for washing feet in chapter 13 is an illustration and a visual of the work of the blood of Jesus Christ in the life of the believer. And the dirt on Peter's feet, yeah. The dirt on Peter's feet is an image of the dirty, vile, unsightly sin picked up along the journey of life by every traveler. Not some. Every traveler on every toe, on every foot. For all have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God. No one is righteous. No, not one. Every toe is dirty. So this is our story. Last week we considered five reasons why this gospel illustration should be treasured by Cross Point Fellowship. It helps us visualize our dirt. That was the first one. It helps us visualize our dirt. It's a simple picture of dirty fishermen feet. You can envision those. You've seen guys that wear sandals that shouldn't. You know what I'm talking about. Man, cover those nasty things up. You can envision dirty fishermen feet. It helps us envision our sin and see what it looks like as a representative of all feet. It helps us see we can't do anything about our dirt. We're just kind of sitting there going, humph. What do I do with that? I got dirty feet, and I'm stuck with them. It shows us our humanity in the work of salvation. While we look at Peter and we expect that some of his, his uh, reluctance to let Christ wash his, wash his feet had to do with his reverence for Christ, since it is a picture of the cross and the work of the cross in the life of the believer, we can also recognize that there's something in all of us that wants to keep our feet up under the table. And I... I really don't want to let my feet be out in public where people can see my dirt. Jesus, I don't want you to reckon with my dirt. I'd much rather keep them in my nasty, moist sandals. It shows us that the one wronged is the divine washer. This is the most, one of the most remarkable ones to me. The one wronged, hear this, the one wronged is the divine washer. That's why the Christian faith is so radically different from insert X. Every other religion. It is self-validating in the fact that every other religion, I don't say most, I mean every single other religion and faith says that the one wronged is the one getting his feet washed by those who are so desperately trying to get saved somehow or get their salvation on. But not our gospel. 
Our gospel's different. The one wronged is the one kneeling and washing feet. Man wouldn't make up our gospel. Man couldn't make up our gospel. It is self-validating, self-authenticating. And the last thing, the sweet reason, is that this foot washing portrays those he saves as a needy bunch. A bunch of people walking around on crutches. Man, you just need a crutch of religion. Those who have really dined on this say, oh, yeah, you're right. His name is Jesus. And I'm so lame. I'm so sorry. I'm so poor. I'm so blind. I'm so helpless without him. You bet I need him. I'm quite needy. I'm quite dependent on this Jesus. That's not only something that we just give up and agree to. It is our very song. Today, what I want to do is finish up the second half of last week's message. That's where we left off. That was kind of a recap. If you missed last week, I still want you to go listen to it because you'd missed a lot. But that was a recap. Discerned and enjoyed with the eyes of the heart. This morning, though, I want to finish up the second half of last week's message with a medley of stinky feet through our Bible. We're going to consider five stinky-footed stinky people from the Old Testament. We're going to consider six stinky-footed people from the New Testament. And then one from the turn of the 19th century. Okay, let's go to our Bibles. Genesis chapter 18. Turn there with me. Our first of the medley is a man named Abraham. In this chapter, in Genesis chapter 18, Abraham, really in some ways the father of our faith also, Abraham is begging for those, the righteous, in Sodom. He's speaking with God. And embedded within his conversation with God and his plea for the righteous of Sodom, he's hoping there are a few there. He says these words in chapter 18, verse 27. He says, Behold, I've undertaken to speak to the Lord. I who am but dust and ashes. Now here's the remarkable thing about Abraham saying, I who am but dust and ashes, and referring to him as that, is the fact that Abraham doesn't have the full story. He doesn't have the whole thing that we have right here. Really all Abraham has is a command to go to a place that he doesn't know. And to leave his heritage of moon worship. (laughs) And go to a land that he's never been to before. Pitch his tent there. Move in. And guess what? Oh, by the way, you're going to inherit that land someday. That's about all he's got. And here he's referring to himself as dust and ashes. He hasn't quaked with Isaiah in chapter 6. In the temple vision. This Abraham hasn't seen the Red Sea part or heard the wind of the destroyer overhead at midnight. This Abraham hadn't seen hail crushing cattle out in the field. He hadn't seen the Dead Sea turn to blood. He hadn't seen frogs jumping in Egyptian beds. He hadn't seen any of those things. He hasn't trembled with John in the throne room vision of Revelation chapter 4 and 5. 
He hadn't done any of those things, yet when he endeavors to speak with God and to reason with God, he refers to himself as dust and ashes. That's Abrahamic for, I've got dirty feet. Here's the next guy, Jacob. Turn to Genesis chapter 32. We're going to move quickly through these guys. We may camp out on a couple of them, but we're just going to be clicking them off. Medley. Genesis chapter 32, verse 10. It's dealing with a guy named Jacob. In verse 10, Jacob says, I'm not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you have shown your servant. I enjoy the picture of Jacob so much because Jacob shows that even a heel-grabbing liar can be saved. That's what his name means, heel-grabber. <laughs> and if you know the story of Jacob, you know that he is a liar. And he conspired to get the birthright from his daddy that wasn't for him. And here he is in chapter 32, verse 10. Here he is begging God for his life. He's fearing that his brother Esau, the hairy red guy, is going to come after him and take him rightfully. He's keenly aware of his dirt and his guilt. He knows what he's due, and he's begging the only one able to spare his life. His declaration, this, these words that we must embrace, are the words, I'm not worthy. That's Jacobish for, I've got really dirty feet. Now here's a side note before we move on to the next guy. The phrase, I'm not worthy, is one that's sweet. It's one that every believer should have just right on the tip of our tongue all the time. It is the very lens through which the glory of God comes into focus. Without these lenses of I'm not worthy, then you don't know you need grace. Which is what seems to be the banner that God wants before it, is that he is graceful and that he's merciful and that he's a deliverer. Without this lens of I'm not worthy, you don't know you need a savior. <laughs> so while the world's wanting to stroke you and a lot of the church is wanting to stroke you and say I'm okay, you're okay my Bible's saying you're not worthy and I'm not worthy we've got stinky feet and we want to embrace this lens with the dirty foot lens you see clearly and more clearly your unworthiness and God's great worth and he will never be your treasure apart from that lens. So I'm not worthy is a sweet phrase that the people of God should love. Our next guy is Job. Turn to Job chapter 31. Job's story is such a treasure. Satan is prowling around looking for somebody to devour. And God says, hey, Satan... Let me offer up Job. Satan didn't find Job. God said, hey, have you considered my servant, Job? The book of Job is such a sweet picture because it, it shows us that God is not snoozing whenever God's people, whenever the faithful experience some terrible trials. It, go, it shows that 
We know that God was not snoozing when, God, when, when Job lost his family, his servants, his flocks, his herds, and all his stuff, all but his nagging old wife. The one thing that he probably wished had passed on. God offered him up. And Satan, who doesn't scratch his behind without permission from the living God, gets permission from the living God to give Job quite a beating. And then Job, over the course of the book, is questioning God. God, what in the world are you doing here? And the climax of the questions are in chapter 31. Listen to what to his appeal. His appeal is along the lines of, God, look how clean my feet are. And listen to what he says. He says, I've made a covenant with my eyes. How then can I gaze at a virgin? I don't even look at other women, God. Look how clean my toes are. Now I'm going to be jumping through here on the rest of this chapter. You might be able to follow along. He says, God, is not calamity for the unrighteous and disaster for the workers of iniquity, for those with dirty feet? (laughs) Don't bad things happen to bad people? My feet are so twinkly clean. Does not God see my ways and number all my steps? If I've walked with falsehood and my foot has hastened to deceit, if my step has turned aside from the way and my heart has gone after my eyes, and if any spot has stuck to my hands, then let me sow and another eat. And let what grows for me be rooted out. If my heart has been enticed toward another woman, if I've been checking out the ladies... And if I've lain in wait at my neighbor's door, then let my wife be hot for somebody else. He says, if I've rejected the cause of my manservant or my maidservant, if I've withheld anything that the poor desired, if I've seen anyone perish for lack of clothing, if I've raised my hand against the fatherless, then in verse 22 he says, then... If my feet were dirty, then let my shoulder blade fall from my shoulder and let my arm be wrenched from its socket. Come on, God. My feet are so twinkly clean. If I've made gold my trust or called fine gold my confidence, if I have rejoiced because my wealth was abundant or because my hand had found much, if I have looked at the sun when it shone or the moon moving in splendor, and my heart secretly wanted to worship the sun or the moon. Ooh. If my heart had been secretly enticed and my mouth had kissed my hand, I don't know what that is. Maybe he's kissing the ring. I don't know. But if I had done those things, this would also be an iniquity to be punished by the judges. If I have rejoiced at the ruin of him who hated me, if I have concealed my transgressions as others do, Then rip my arm from its shoulder. Then pull my shoulder blade out. That's how he's kind of characterizing what's happened to him. You think that would hurt? Ooh. He's characterizing the pain that he's going through. And here's the climax of this line of questioning. Verse 35. He says, Oh, that I had one to hear me. Here is my signature, God. Let the Almighty answer me. Oh, that I had the indictment written by my adversary. Job's story is such a treasure because he goes through a severe beating. 
at the hands of Satan, permitted by the living God. He goes into a line of questioning that just seems so familiar to anybody who's ever suffered. And he begs God, let the Almighty answer me. And that's exactly what God does out of the whirlwind. It goes something like this. It begins with dress for action like a man. Job, I will question you. (laughs) And then for about four or five chapters, God gives Job a lesson on his sovereignty and his power and his dominion. Chapters 38 through 41, he essentially says, Job, I'm God and you are not. And Job's response is in chapter 42. Job's response after hearing that whole thing from the living God is in chapter 42, verse 5. (laughs) He says, I had heard of you, God. (laughs) I'd heard about you is kind of what it sounds like. I thought I knew kind of who you were. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. I can't help but wonder if he's referring to the eyes of his heart have now engaged the glory and the splendor and the sovereignty and the majesty and the dominion of the living God. And he says, he says, Therefore, having seen your glory, having seen your sovereignty and your majesty, I despise myself and I repent in dust and ashes. That's Jobian. For I've got really stinky feet. My feet are really, really dirty. I am but dust and ashes, Abraham said. I'm not worthy, Jacob says. And Job says, I repent in dust and ashes. Let's go to Psalm 51. If you're familiar with your psalm, psalms, you know where we're going. This is a psalm of David. David was a righteous king. He was a man after God's own heart. He was all there in his pursuit of the Lord. But he sinned with Bathsheba and he became an adulterer and a murderer. And Nathan, that's why I was praying for Kevin Herbert in the beginning and my prayer for for me and other pastors in this community is that we have somebody that we're accountable to. Nathan steps in the room and he says, David, you have dirty feet. If you have nobody in your life that will get in your face, men, and say, you have dirty feet, consider that a man after God's own heart needs that. If you think you don't, then maybe you're better than David. But David now recognizing, he looks down and he says, Oh, they are dirty. And in chapter one of verse, or chapter 51 of verse 1, he says, Have mercy on me, O God. He, has, he recognizes his dirty feet, and then he turns Godward. He says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions and wash my stinky, nasty, dirty feet. 
Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. I'm seeing this dirt and I can do nothing about it. And against you, listen. Remember the wronged is the one washing feet? It says against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. I sinned against the living God and I'm begging you to wash that sin away. This is commentary on John 13. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Those last words. I was brought forth in iniquity and conceived in sin. Those words are Davidic. For my feet stink and they always have. Let's go to Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah chapter 6. I'm going to start reading because the, you'll get there by the time we get to where we're really focusing. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon the throne high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Verse 2. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face. And with two he covered his feet. And with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. And the whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said to myself, Self, woe is me. Is, are there any cracks in the floor that I can hide in? Is there a hole that I can scurry away and smush myself down in before the living holy God? He says, woe is me for I'm lost for I'm a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. In view of the glory of God, Isaiah's words are, I'm a man of unclean lips and my feet are dirty let's move to the new testament these next passages i'll give them to you but i'm going to start to move pretty quickly not because of light treatment but because we just don't need to spend long there john chapter 1 verse 23 john the baptist that's why he's the reason i didn't shave today i got up this morning put shaving cream all over my face and i was about to go to work and then I said, no, I'm talking about John the Baptist today. It just wouldn't be right to shave. This is the manliest of men. So we're going to enjoy and engage John the Baptist in his words. John the Baptist was quite the preacher. He had quite the following. He had a bunch of disciples too. You may not know that. A bunch of disciples followed John the Baptist. And a bunch of people wanted to come out and find out what he was all about. The Pharisees said, hey, man, go find out what this dude's all about. So these guys all go off and they're asking him, dude, what are you all about? And he responds in verse 23, he says, I'm a voice of one crying in the wilderness. I'm just a voice. <laughs> and my voice is crying out, make straight the way of the Lord. He's like a big, hairy, bug-eating, honey-eating, camel-skin-wearing arrow. This pointed to Jesus. Like a North Seagan arrow on a compass. John the Baptist is pointing to Jesus. Where, where is he? Okay, there he is. That's what John the B was about. He's got this following. All these people want to follow him. And he's saying, you know what? Verse 26, he says, I baptize with water, but among you, you guys that are out seeking me out, 
that want to put me on your shoulders and shout hoorah? He says, among you stands one you do not know. Even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am unworthy to tie. Here's the reality with John the B. He also said later, he said, Christ must increase and I must decrease. All these guys come out to make a big deal out of him. John the B, tell, give us your bio. Tell us all about yourself. He could have said, oh, shucks. <laughs> I'm pretty awesome, I know, you know. He said, man, I'm unworthy to even touch the dirt on his sandal straps. The dirt that gets next to his feet is cleaner than my hands. I am unworthy. He must increase and I must decrease. That's John the B for my feet are dirty. Then there's to the tax collector in Luke chapter 18. Luke chapter 18, savor this with me with the eyes of your heart. Verse 9, Jesus tells a parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. You know anybody like that? Are you like that? He told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. He says, two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector over here. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. And aren't my feet and toes twinkly clean? But the tax collector standing far off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven. He seemed to be almost looking down at his dirty, nasty feet. And he beats his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner with dirty, nasty feet. I tell you, this man, this dirt-recognizing man, went down to his house justified rather than the other. It sounds like part of justification is recognizing that you've got some nasty feet. Beating your breast, man, I got some dirt on my feet. I got a problem between me and God because he's holy and I'm especially not. Next was the Canaanite woman in Matthew 15. I'm just going to read the passage. Go ahead. You can turn it if you want. Matthew 15, 22. It says, Behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came. She came out and was crying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. (laughs) Okay, so this Canaanite woman, she's crying out. Save my daughter, she's got a demon in her. And he answered, he said, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and knelt before him. And she said, Lord, help me. And he answered, it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Now, that's, that's my, I, I'm sure he didn't say it like that. I don't know how he said it, but I want you to feel the weight of that. He's calling her a dog. <laughs> this Canaanite woman, he's saying, you're a dog. It's not right for me to take the 
the children's bread, the bread of Israel, and throw it to the dogs. And listen to what she says. She says, yes, Lord, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. <laughs> she doesn't say, well, how dare you? I never, I never had anybody call me a dog before. She says, yes, Lord, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that, or even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. And he responds, he says, oh, woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. So these words, even the dogs eat the crumbs, Jesus. Rough. Rough, rough. That's Canaanite woman for my feet stink. And I'm unworthy of you doing anything for me. And he says, your faith is sweet. Then there's a centurion with a sick servant. I'm just going to read the passage. Luke chapter 7, you can look at it later. And Jesus went with them. When he was not far from the house, the centurion sent some people to go get Jesus. He's got a sick slave, and he wants his slave to be well. His slave meant a lot to him. So he says, go get Jesus. So they go get Jesus, and they bring him. And then the servant, or the centurion, almost like he's thinking, oh, you know, I sent for him, but I'm not sure I can even handle him being in my house because he's so holy, and he's so righteous, and he's so awesome. So he sends some more friends to them saying, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I'm not worthy. There it is. You hear it again? I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you. And Jesus said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. So it seems that this thing that might just be kind of an accessory to the faith, of this, these lens of I'm not worthy, that it may be essential to faith. See, I've never seen faith like that. In all of Israel, as this centurion recognizes his dirty feet. Then there's Peter in Luke chapter 5. He says to Christ, he says, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man. The same guy that's getting his feet washed in John chapter 13. Peter's call, listen to this. Don't disengage from this this morning. Tune your eyes back in. Boop. Open them back up. Close these eyes and open these eyes up. Peter's call began with a sermon from his boat, from his bassmaster, from a stranger, a strange preacher, and then a really short but very productive fishing trip. <laughs> Here's how it went. Peter fished all day before Jesus commandeered his boat. He caught nothing, man. He'd been fishing all day, nothing. Man, it's a bad day. The wind's blowing, and, and I'm out of tobacco. And my worms had dried up. I can't, can't catch anything. He caught nothing. And Jesus told Peter, he gets in his boat, he preaches, and then Jesus turns to Peter and he tells him to cast his nets. And Peter must be thinking to himself, okay, you're a pretty amazing preacher, but I'm the fisherman here, leaning over on his fish finder, got his Bill Dance hat on. I'm the fisherman here, you're the preacher. You need to stick to teaching and preaching. But he cast his nets out there anyway, and then they couldn't contain the fish. And Peter's response to seeing the dominion of Christ over fish, even fish, obey him. Load up! <laughs> Come get in this big old net, fish! Yes, sovereign God, I'm on my way. 
Peter's response to seeing the dominion of Christ over fish and all the rules of Bill Dance fishing leaves him begging Christ, get away from me. I'm a sinful man. You're too awesome. In the light of his glory, he sees his own dirty feet and the very feet that he's washing there in John chapter 13 later. Ah! Isn't that poetic? Does that make your heart sing a little bit? And the last guy, biblical guy, we're going to consider is Paul. We've got to consider Paul. We can't leave Paul out of this. Paul says in Romans chapter 7, seven verse 8, he says, For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. Nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. Paul, circumcised the eighth day of the tribe of Benjamin, a Pharisee, a Harvard grad, <laughs> the Jewish version. Somebody told me I do that often, and now I'm paying attention to it. <laughs> I do do that often. I don't know how that is, kind of a goofy little thing. Paul, circumcised the eighth day of the tribe of Benjamin, a Pharisee. He's the Jewish Harvard grad, studied under Gamaliel. He's five times he received 40 lashes minus one. Anybody gotten that before? Five times 40 lashes minus one. That's 39. Three times he was beaten with rods. He stoned once, three times shipwrecked, a night and a day adrift at sea. Holding on to a stick. He's on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, in danger from Roger, robbers, not Rogers, robbers, <laughs> danger from his own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness. Man, people are after this joker. Danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. This, like, superhero of the faith. Big P on his chest. This Paul says, nothing good dwells in me. I don't think that that's just an accessory to the faith. I think it's characteristic of the faith. It is the goods of the faith. And Paul's saying, essentially, that's Pauline for saying, my feet are dirty. I've done all those things, and they didn't cleanse my feet. There's only one thing that can cleanse my feet. We'll talk about that in a moment. Here's our extra-biblical guy. I mentioned his name to somebody this morning, to Mark. I'm going to put Mark on the spot. William Carey, he said, who's that? I said, exactly. That's why we need to talk about William Carey. William Carey is probably the father of modern missions. He was born in 1761 in England. This guy had a knack for languages. He learned Latin as a little boy. He taught himself Latin. Then as a young man, he taught himself Greek. Gracious. After marrying an illiterate wife, which is this weird contrast, (laughs) he marries an illiterate wife in 1781, and then he taught himself Hebrew, Italian, Dutch, and French. Taught himself. In 1789, he became pastor of a little Baptist church. And while pastoring, likely preaching each week, seeing God's burden, he became burdened for the nations. 1793, he and his family sailed for India with nothing but the gospel and a burden and some pretty amazing gifting with languages. They settled initially in Calcutta and began translating the Bible into Bengali. 
While there, his son died of dysentery, and his wife suffered a nervous breakdown. She never recovered, and she died in 1807, a complete lunatic. She was such a mess after her, their son died. She spent the last few years screaming in her tent while William translated the Bible in the room next door into six languages. The whole Bible into six completely new languages and then parts of it into 29 languages. Another superhero. He got the P, or the W in his case. W.C., William Carey. Superhero. And in 1812, a fire destroyed dozens of his translations, and he didn't blame Satan, because remember, Satan doesn't scratch his behind without permission. He didn't blame Satan. Rather, he said, how unsearchable are the ways of God. He accused himself of too much self-congratulation in his translation work, and he said, the Lord has smitten us. He had a right to do so, and we deserve his corrections. This is... William Carey-ish for My Feet Stink. His translation and mission work continued then while four of his close teammates died on the mission field. He wrote these words. Remember the superhero, W.C.? He said, I know not why so fruitless a tree is preserved, but the Lord is too wise to err. I know not why so fruitless a six language, Bible, translating dude. I know not why this fruitless tree is preserved. When he died in 1834, a simple tablet was placed on his grave with the words he requested. And here's what it said. It said, William Carey, born August 17th, 1761, died June 9th, 1834, a wretched, poor, and helpless worm. On thy kind arms I fall. That lens isn't optional. That lens is part of the faith. Of these guys that we've considered and gals and dogs that we've considered this morning, Job really stands out to me. He in the midst of his search for answers, he made this plea. In chapter 9, verse 33, he said, There's no arbiter between us. I've lost everything except my nagging wife. I'm going through extreme suffering and pain. And there's no arbiter between us who might lay his hand on us both. We were reading the New Living translation as a family. And here's how they translated in New Living. It said, if only there were a mediator who might lay his hand on both of us. You know what Job was aching for as he's sitting there with dirty feet. At that point, he doesn't know it yet. He still thinks they're squeaky clean. What he's aching for when he's engaging the living God with dirty feet is someone to lay his hand on both of them. One hand on a dirty foot, one hand on the living God. He's begging for an arbiter. Begging for a mediator. And the reality is that Job and the rest of these Old Testament guys, the rest of these New Testament guys, William Carey and you 
We all have one, actually two things in common. That we recognize our dirt and that we look to God as the only one with a remedy. And that we recognize the only one who can deal with those dirty feet is our Christ. And the work that washed those dirty feet is the cross. So let's join these saints. Let's join WC, a poor, wretched, and helpless worm. Let's join those guys in falling on the kind arms of Jesus Christ. It's the only arms that will do. Let me pray. Lord, I pray that you will just teach us to enjoy you. Change us from the heart outward. Guard us from being an eyes-only sort of people that are just collecting data. And make us a people that are arrested with grace, surprised by the cross. Create in us an attitude that recognizes both dirty feet and a holy God in the same view and our Christ as the mediator between us with a hand on both of us. Lord, create in us a song as a result of that. Not just a one-time hit, but a daily, a daily rhythm of worship that's fueled by a daily worship and wonder. And a Christ is so worthy. What a sweet privilege we've had this morning of enjoying Him together. We pray in these next few minutes that as we respond and worship in song and worship in giving, that you'll find us all there. That you'll not find us throttling back and with our cruise control on, but you'll find us truly enjoying this scandalous gospel. Pray that you'll be pleased and be a sweet aroma to you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Let's worship in song.